This is unbelievable. If somebody told me a month ago I'd be playing golf by moonlight in the Alaskan wilderness. All right, well, it's a long five, okay? So you gotta carry those trees and just pick up as much real estate along the way as you can. Power it, huh? If you do it right, you should be able to see it before you get there. See the ball. I'll give it a shot. Lee, have you ever actually golfed before? No, not actually. I remember as a kid, uh, we got one of my friends, like dad's um, bag of golf clubs. And then we kind of went out to like an open field and practicing like swinging, but not on like a real course and not with any real uh, understanding. Though I have been playing a lot of Mario Golf 64 on the uh, Switch, like the Nintendo Online, Nintendo ah. 64 Mario Golf. Yeah, surely, surely that is within the realms of like ordinary golf, right? <laughs> I have learned a lot from playing the video game. I don't know if I'd actually like golfing, but I do, I have found out that I do like video games where you play golf. That involves golf. <laughs> yeah, that is a lot of fun. Oh, man. Uh, I like, I never golfed before. I did not live in an environment that had anywhere that was like people involved in golf. Uh, but we did have golf clubs growing up, which I thought was strange. Did your dad ever play or something? Or no, absolutely not. Just yeah, we had them. like golf clubs. We had like uh, like a nine iron or something like that. And I was like, is this for like home defense or something? Like what, what is going Maybe on like here? Like at one point in his life or one point in your parents' life, they played a game or something. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Have you ever played? Uh, did you play putt-putt growing up? Putt-putt, yes. Yeah. Is that considered real golf? No, I don't think so. That's miniature golf. But still got golf. That's what it's called. Still got golf in the title. <laughs> it has golf in the title. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I like, I like putt-putt a lot. I'm a little rusty. I mean, we had... So putt-putt, I guess, is maybe a brand name. I'm not sure, but miniature golf. We had a place called Putt-Putt in Lake Charles. And I had played it so many times. There were two separate, like, 18-hole courses that at a certain point, you know, like, all the tricks of each. You know, like, where you need to bank the ball. And I even think, like, on some days, they might have, like... Um, marked like the little rails like where you need to hit for like mm -hmm. uh the kids and stuff and then they would erase them but like sometimes the mark would still be there or someone would vandalize it and like mark the rails like you need to bank the ball right here do you remember that or were you any good no at it? <laughs> uh, i don't remember that at all but that just reminded me of what phil was going through when he's playing golf with joel it felt more like putt putt because of how like <laughs> You know, it all was like not traditional. Stuff, is that what you're saying? Or yeah, it was it was not traditional at all. You had to like hit it's like, a like dinosaur off of a tree that or something comes like that. in and like yeah, that too, to, or a moose that comes in and tries to steal your ball. That mm -hmm. almost happened, I think, in the set. Or something was in the yeah, woods out was going, there. Wait, hang on, hang on. Before we even get into it, Lee, what are we talking about here? All right, Charles, we're talking about the 1990s TV series Northern Exposure, and uh, this is the Northern Overexposure podcast. Of course, my name's Lee. And you're Charles. And uh, each episode, we talk about each episode of Northern Exposure. And I've seen the show a number of times, one of my favorite TV shows. However, season six, I've only seen it once. So I'm kind of rewatching it for the first time. And Charles, uh, you've never seen these episodes. Like each episode is new for you. Yeah, it's an entirely new experience for me. I've never seen any of these episodes right here. Coming in with fresh eyes, trying to see what this like feel. I want to. I want to keep calling her Terry Polo because that's a Cause real it is name. Terry Polo, right? Yeah. Yeah, Michelle. Michelle. Phil Michelle. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna remember that. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to place it right here. Obviously, I've been spoiled a little bit. I know what's happening. I know that eventually Joel's gonna set off. Mm -hmm. Maybe. 
I don't think he dies. <laughs> then it'd be way too dark for the show. <laughs> I don't think he dies, but like he has to leave somehow. So I'm assuming that he doesn't stay up river. There is the like entire a send off episode. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't, I don't assume that it's like, yeah, it's Joel. It's, the show is no more, but he's only like 20 minutes away. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, true. That like, they strange. can't, they really can't just leave him there. He's going to have to do something, but yeah, there is, there's definitely a send off episode. Yeah. I did like, um, I actually did really like Phil and Michelle Capra in this episode, I still think they're really starting to, they're just beginning to kind of figure out what they're going to do in this series. And I think this episode kind of paves an interesting road we can talk about when we start diving in. I remember uh, the last episode we covered, which was the first episode featuring Phil and Michelle, I asked you, you know, did they do the right thing? Did they do the right thing in, in uh, replacing or, you know, filling in this slot? Uh, so I, I guess we'll see, we'll, we'll continue to ask ourselves that question. I really liked that we had Joel and Phil together in this episode. I think that made a lot of sense uh, for what's happening in this season. Uh, so yeah, I just think it was a smart move to include an episode like this, just in the grand scheme of uh, of Northern Exposure season six. Yeah, definitely. Uh, let's talk about who wrote the episode, who directed it, and then I'm going to do... Uh, what I've been trying to do for season six, like an encapsulating overview okay. of what I felt about it. And then we'll go into the individual plot lines. How does that sound? Sounds good. This is, uh, we should have mentioned, this is the 10th episode in season six. It's called Real Politic, uh, which I guess is like a Russian phrase. I kind of quickly researched that. Real Politic, I believe it's uh, more about like practical things than ideology. Uh, practical politics over just idea ideologies. So that's the title of the episode. The director was Victor Lobel. He didn't direct any other episode of Northern Exposure. Very old guy. I mean, <laughs> I know like this is a this is a 30-year-plus-old show, but I just was trying to find out more about Victor Lobel. IMDb he says he was born in 1940, and he did direct uh, some television, at least on IMDb. I think it's like in the 90s, 80s, and then kind of ending around the early 2000s. So not a whole lot of credits, but he directed, you know, a handful of episodes of Star Trek Voyager, Deep Space Nine, Beverly Hills 90210. Of course, uh, this one episode of Northern Exposure. It was written by Sam Egan, who wrote the episode The Robe earlier in this season. That's the one where like Shelly meets the devil and he wants her to burn that robe. And I'm sure there's some other things, but, you know, the title only refers, I think, to that one part. And Sam Egan's going to continue to write a couple more times, maybe two or three more times in this season. Uh, but his first episode was this season, The Robe. The air date of this episode, December 12th, 1994. I think we're going to be coming up uh, soon, Charles, to that broadcasting switch. I think it's like early in 95 when they switch from Monday nights to Wednesday nights. But uh, that's kind of just our rundown real fast. Charles, what did you think overall of this episode? Uh, let's talk about the positives first before we go into the negatives. Uh, like you mentioned, big fan of Phil and Joel meeting up. Kind of feels like, uh, I mean, it's definitely passing not the this. torch or something. Or, or go ahead. Yeah, it's definitely passing the torch. But the terminology I want to use for it is like a like a Avengers Assemble type of thing. <laughs> like, I know it's not, that's not what like, 
when they're teaching you in film school, they're not saying like this is the Avengers Assemble moment. Like they're not saying that. <laughs> but it's that scene that like you know the audience is waiting for, and they're they're waiting on the edge of their seats, being mm-hmm. like, I can't wait for these two characters to meet up because of you know how pivotal they are to the story. Uh, obviously, they're trying to pass the torch. We're gonna see more of how we're gonna see more of how Joel grew, and we're gonna see how Phil has yet to grow. So mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, there was, there was one more. Yeah. The other plot line would be, I mean, obviously I, th- I think, I think I already know what you maybe didn't like was Chris, Chris's plot line. Uh, the third, maybe it was the, I know there's a plot line with Marilyn and the Husky. Is that, mm-hmm. that's, a, is that it? That's all that's going on. I think. Oh, wait, Maggie becomes mayor <laughs> this episode. That's oh, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. That's yeah, what yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. What do you think of those, those aspects? Uh, how would you rank those plus or minus for, for each of those? Like minus, it, it's got for for which? What are you talking about? Oh, 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 yeah. For all of those things, pretty much. I get what's happening here thematically. They want to end it on a little bit of an uncomfortable note because this episode is all about transition. It's about change, and change isn't always a very smooth process where you go in and out a door, and suddenly you're outside, and everything's okay, and you're good to go. It's small incremental steps sustained over a period of time. So we're ending the episode with Phil and Michelle in bed saying, I think it's going to get better, but we're going to have to weather through this in order to slowly conform to the contours of this place. Mm -hmm. And Maggie and Chris have a similar thing where they end on a rocky, very rocky way. Where (laughs) Plus Maggie loses the vote too. Yeah, like it's to show her the, you know, the reality of what it's like to govern. And then we have Marilyn and the dog, who is a little bit more sweeter, but still ultimately reluctant. It's like giving in. It's like I'm accepting yeah. that the, the this is the way things are. And you know, all of these things. When like when I was watching, I was like, I, I get what's happening here, but I just think that there's more they could have done with it than just show that transition is challenging. I I think that that's a very simple statement and you could possibly even do that within like the act one. I think something more interesting that could have happened is if they could have taken that and weaved it into some sort of larger grand idea, Mm -hmm. maybe even tying into the town. I don't know. I'm just saying that like, to me, it felt like such a strange, depressing, kind of mean episode of Northern Exposure. Oh, no. I think specifically the way things uh, shake up at the end and a lot of those plot lines, yeah, are kind kind of ending on what you could see as like down notes. Um, I think the episode does a lot of really interesting things. Um, I agree. It's kind of soured by how, uh, can we say depressing maybe? I don't know. It's like a kind of down notes. uh, You know, they they don't succeed. No one really succeeds. It's cloudy. It's it's dark and cloudy out there. (laughs) But uh, I was going to say, I do think the ending with uh, Maggie's, which I guess we're going to go in depth to each of the plot lines, but I think that is maybe one of the most interesting outcomes that they could find because she does, um, you know, obviously like it, it is a um, sort of an upset, a surprise, uh, maybe not too surprising, but you know, it's kind of surprising that she lost in the end when we're kind of rooting for her. Like the audience wants her to win that vote uh, as one of her first, you know, um, measures as 
uh, mayor. But uh, I think it's interesting uh, how how it plays out. I don't want to go too specific now because I think we might as well just start jumping into the plot lines because uh, we can talk in depth. Yeah. You want to talk about Maggie's first? Let's do it. Yeah. So it starts, the episode starts, uh, no opening gambit. We got the theme music, and then we cut into Chris on the radio announcing uh, their early sort of um, counting of the votes, and they're pretty positive. They can just go ahead and call it at this point for Mary Margaret O'Connell, the new mayor of Sicily, and we cut hard cut to uh, Maggie like opening her door, and a bunch of people are rushing in, congratulating her. Um, actually, I have a soundbite for this I could play. Um, it's basically just to set it up. As I said, Maggie opens the door. I think the first person to talk to her is Walt. Um, and so he's going to be ushering in like everyone into Maggie's house. Congratulations. Congratulations, my dear. The better man was a woman. Ah, uh, thanks, Walt. Citizens of Sicily, I'd like to compliment the last of the clean campaigners. To the shrewdest, toughest, most decent political opponent, I've ever had the pleasure of being trounced. You got a rebel. No, there's plenty. Help yourself. Hey, Walt. Sorry you lost. Didn't really want the job anyway, Ed. Of course, the stationery would have been nice. I like that as like a, a fun, clean, quick exposition dump. You know, we immediately hear that Walt was running against Maggie. I guess Edna just wasn't interested in running again. Edna Hancock, the the original mayor. Well, what about Halling? Yeah, Halling had he didn't run either, right? Because because originally it was Edna and Halling, right, in the last election, right? I guess after Halling lost that first election, because I don't think he was ever really. You remember, like early in season one, it's like. Hollings the mayor? He runs the brick. He's a bartender, you know, but it's like, you know, it's more of an honorary title. So so maybe Holling, after losing that election, was like, you know, being mayor was cool, but I, I didn't really, you know, I wasn't really too focused on governing, I guess. Edna had more of a, an interest maybe in trying to make change. And then I think the last time we heard about Edna, Charles, was maybe she was like in Costa Rica or something. Like she was on vacation. Do you remember that? <laughs> uh, yeah, so vaguely. Kind of yeah. Yeah, this is also where we get our first friction point where Michelle, I almost said Terry Pillow, Michelle brings up the <laughs> yeah. idea that their dump is so far away for the townsfolk. Mm -hmm. They have to go a little bit farther yonwards in order to put the trash down. And I don't know if it's in this scene specifically, but I thought it was actually kind of dark where Maggie said, "Yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, someone actually, like one of the townsfolk, keep in mind, there's only like 700 people here. <laughs> Like, one of their townsfolk, their dearly beloved, went outside to go dump their trash and just froze to death. Yeah, with both trash bags, like trash bags in both arms. He's like froze like 100 feet from the dump. Uh, yeah, and they were like, they all sat there and they were like, yeah. I, either yeah, they're thinking like, sad. yeah, he had it coming to him or no one was like, eh, it's like way of life here. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's what you get. You know, that's what they, that's their reaction. The uh, I think later in the episode, someone mentions that it's like a 6.5 mile drive out to the dump. So that's 12 miles, you know, in in total, I guess, or 13. That's like so Yeah. That, that's such a that's the antithetical to what New York does. Cuz they just dump their trash like right outside. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's what some people in Sicily on this on the council city council are afraid will happen, you know, but now uh so this is the this is the beginning of, you know, perhaps uh bringing this up as a a point, a measure, I don't know what you would call it, in the in the city council because uh, Maggie 
to Michelle, she says, you know, that's interesting. Someone else had the same comment or this has been like floated before. So maybe this could be one of the first things I try to attempt as mayor, as mayor of Sicily. She wants to, uh, she later says in, a, in another scene that she wants to start her uh, mayor position in a positive way, in a progressive way to uh, make things better for the people of Sicily. So she, I guess, like Edna Hancock, is uh, also has the mindset that she wants to change things. She wants to bring uh, better things to Sicily, not just kind of sit back and uh, forgot to comment how funny it was when Walt was like, you know, I didn't really want to be mayor. You know, maybe the stationery would have been nice though. I could have like written on the Sicily <laughs> mayor station head or is it, what do you call that station? What is that called? Stationary uh, letterhead? Letterhead is what yeah, it's called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's pretty much what's going on in this scene. We also get a quick little moment where we sense that Ruthann is maybe a little upset that Maggie is mayor. Of course, Ruthann probably voted for Walt because they're in love, but turns out there's going to be a little more friction between Ruthann and Maggie in the city council. Uh, other thing I just want to say about this scene is that it's largely a continuous shot. There, I think it's split up into two shots. You know, we follow everyone entering into the party and the camera just floats around with Walt and Ed and then with Ruthann and Maggie. I think there's a cut point somewhere with Michelle and Maggie. Um, but there's a lot of, uh, I guess, long continuous takes, which is um, a very effective way, I guess, to quickly try to shoot a scene with a lot of background, you know, a lot of characters there. You don't have to keep everyone waiting around as you adjust the camera angles. Probably mm -hmm. did that for a... Uh, economic reasons for scheduling, but I think it's a, it, it gives it a cool party vibe. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great description for it. Is it often <laughs> used for parties? Uh, I, I wonder, I mean, um, it makes sense that it would be right. I guess. Cause you, cause you have to, I guess the tricky thing would be that if you are moving the camera a lot, you would need to make sure that, uh, the entire location is well lit, you know? You mm -hmm. have so you have enough lights to light the whole scene because you'll probably be seeing a lot of different things in the party. Oh, That's the only challenge. Okay. But otherwise, I guess it'd be you know the challenge would be setting up the lights. But then once you shoot it, it's done. You don't have to get as much coverage anymore. You don't have to get many cuts and stuff. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Like you were talking about, there is definitely a rift, and it's an ideological rift between Ruthann and Maggie because as we get to the next scene. We finally get to the first city council meeting, which is composed of, of course, Maggie the mayor. You have Holling, Ruthann, Chris, and Eugene. Mm -hmm. She is like, I, I guess it all makes <laughs> sense, but like, I don't know. I, I just, I, I wish that they would have established that there is a city council in these six seasons that we've been watching with an exposure. <laughs> yeah, it's just been sort of town hall meetings. We haven't really seen any city council before. I wonder, is this like a new thing? Uh, or is this put in place by Edna? Was this created because Edna started becoming absent? Um, or we could assume that this has just always been here all along and we haven't really focused too much about it. I could believe that this has been around. We just don't see it, but it's strange if that is the true case because we see so many town hall meetings and no city council representatives, I guess. Right. And you know what? Maurice runs the town halls, but he's not here. He's yeah. Not a member of the, the, the council. It's interesting. I, yeah. Eugene seems the most out of place simply because he's uh, less of a main cast character, but I could see like Holling as the proprietor of the brick, Ruthann, the general store, Chris, just sort of like the, 
sounds of Sicily, like the Well, of, also, he's such a charismatic fella. Like, yeah. you know that the townsfolk are going to vote for him. Yeah, to, to, to be on city council. And then I guess Eugene is kind of like a young, young up-and-comer, maybe. Like, he's still, you know, he's just like an everyman. And he's he's uh, presumably younger than, I mean, I don't know, but I would guess he's younger than Chris too, but they could be, it's kind of hard to say. Um, Maurice, yeah, that would make a lot of sense, but maybe, uh, maybe s- some of his interests um, prevent him. What's the word called where you, where you have to like remove yourself from a political position, recuse, maybe he has to recuse himself because of his uh, businesses or something. I don't know. He has... Too much uh, money tied into some things that he can't really uh, sit on city council. I don't know how that works. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if that's actually a thing. But I mean, uh, <laughs> he should be on city council. He should be paying people to uh, <laughs> to vote for him. <laughs> oh, like as if we're led to believe that he isn't hard lobbying behind right. the scenes. Yeah, that's true. Maybe he <laughs> yeah. just likes that more. <laughs> that's hilarious. So they start to talk about this measure or whatever to bring in a um, uh, to to establish a dumpster, a central dumpster, and also some sort of uh, garbage truck to collect that trash and bring it to the dump, which is seven miles away from town. Um, there's a lot of back and forth. I just wrote down a couple things, something like uh, Eugene saying like, you know, well, I would remind you guys, I would remind the mayor that she should look at the Sicily treasury and she'll see that we couldn't afford to rent a Tonka truck let alone like a garbage truck. Like they have no money for this. They'd have to increase taxes. I think later Maggie even like brings up like there will be a, just like a donation collection box. Like you can just toss in a couple change for presumably it costs like a dollar for every pickup. So that's actually not too crazy expensive. So she's like, yeah, we'll just have a donation collection box. People can throw in if they want to. Um, They really don't have the budget for it at this point. There's a lot of back and forth in this scene, but I think what's important and what the camera focuses on is Chris. I, you know, I'm interpreting from this these visuals that he's got a very strange feeling, specifically um, a reaction to the gavel when Maggie bangs the gavel to bring us all into session. And uh, Chris is, it's almost like he's trying to sneak a look or something, like he's hiding almost the way the camera is positioning him behind other characters like there's there's another maybe ruthann is uh in front of him in comparison to his position to the camera the lens of the camera and chris is like kind of in the back like sneakily looking over at maggie and his point of view on maggie gets tighter and tighter like he's focusing on her you know he's got some shifty eyes uh is he attracted to her what's going on yeah overall I don't think I'm saying like a polarizing statement here. Something that's outlandish. I think most of us, the viewers, would agree that this is a pretty creepy scene. Like this is yeah, this it, is really weird. It gets is, it gets way worse too. I thought it was kind of interesting, which I guess we're going to talk about pretty soon. Um, it gets interesting, so it's like, oh, this is funny. It's like Chris is discovering something about himself. This attraction to powerful women or women in authority, and that's fun. But then it does. Uh, it goes um, beyond the bounds of what would be uh, consensual, and it gets it, it gets pretty pretty scary pretty quick. Uh, actually, I think that's the next scene, right? Uh, let's see. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It gets <laughs> it gets to like the eleven at that point because that's 
I mean, that's sexual assault at that point. Yes. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. What's, what's happening? Set us set up the scene for us. Yeah, real easy setup right here. Maggie's at her home, and Chris comes in. Maggie, obviously, you know, they've been friends for years, so she doesn't suspect anything. And then Chris just suddenly starts kissing her. And, at, okay, so you could, it's a flimsy argument, but you can make the argument. It's like, he's trying to be romantic. So he does it, like, first, like the first time. Mm-hmm. But then she says no. Yes. So, okay, like, that's obviously like that's a line of demarcation of which Chris does not obey. And then he does it again to which then that's like the, that's like a, if the flag wasn't red already, it's blood red at this point. It's like, absolutely not. Like the first one was already not. It's okay. bad. Yeah. It's like, yeah, why, it's why couldn't they just, you know, have Chris, uh, leave at, at that, after that first kiss, we get it. We understand. But the second one is just, uh, really demonizing him. But uh, I thought about this, and I don't think it justifies it, but I, th- I think I understand why, for instance, they sink Chris so low, for instance, like the second kiss after Maggie says no. Later, there's even more disturbing things that Chris does. But the reasoning I can see for maybe the writer doing this is to make it so um, so it seems less dumb, I guess you could say, that Maggie, in the end, chooses to kind of tank her vote, um, you know, to to fail the passing of this uh, legislation, this measure, whatever it would be. We can talk about that in the ending. But um, if it were not so obvious that Chris is, uh, Chris is a bad guy, then Maggie, um, questioning his motive for switching his vote in the end to join her side, it just, it would have been a little harder to sell that. It's like, why would Maggie forfeit the bill when she knows it's the right thing to do to bring the central dumpster into town? Uh, even if, you know, Chris changed his vote. Well, I think, I guess the reasoning is they want it to be so disturbing that Chris would side with her. She knows it's not right. We'll talk about that, I guess, as we get there. I don't think, uh, I, I think it definitely goes, whether or not it makes sense for a motivation for Maggie in the end, I think it's, potentially doing irreparable damage to Chris's character and Chris and Maggie's relationship. This is a very, I mean, we said it, we'll probably say it again. This is a very creepy thing that's happening between Chris and Maggie. Yeah. I think that there is, I, I mean, we can talk, we can talk about it more at oh, the end. Okay. Let's oh, okay. summarize it all. Uh, so we're going to get to the next scene where it's just Ed and Chris. And I think Ed is helping Chris fix his motorbike. Yeah, I can't I tell. So. I can't tell whose motorbike that is. Mm-hmm. But there's a motorbike being fixed, and Chris is trying to uh, express his remorse and his thoughts on what's going on inside his head. He's saying that he's always been attracted to powerful women. And one of the examples that he uses is Janet Reno. He's on the cover of Time magazine that he pulls off. Uh, I didn't know who that was, so I had to look that up. This is coming from... Ye old Wikipedia. <laughs> but uh, Janet Reno was a lawyer who served as the 78th United States Attorney General. Uh, she was nominated by Bill Clinton, and she held the position from 1993 to 2001, making her the second longest serving Attorney General behind only William Wirt. So, oh, wait, she was also the first woman to hold that post, too. Nice. That was a really yeah. neat thing for her. So she has like a wide eclectic. Uh, portfolio, but mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest things that she did was changing policy on how to do DNA and how that works mm-hmm. on death row. 
I think that was one of the things that she was trying to study up more on. And she got a report that concluded that, you know, there was a strong possibility that we're harming more people with this DNA evidence than helping because it oftentimes it's inconclusive or something is going wrong with it. So it's not like a surefire way to get a conviction right there. Mm-hmm. And the more interesting thing, in my opinion, on Jenna Reno is that apparently she was a higher profile. Like she was lampooned a lot in popular culture because she was never married. She just lived her life just doing her thing. And a lot of people picked up on that. So late night host would joke about her height and perceived lack of traditional femininity. Mm. Will Ferrell portrayed her on Saturday Night Live a lot. Mm. <laughs> uh, she even appeared on Saturday Night Live with her. Oh, nice. they were, yeah, <laughs> trying to do that thing. Um, she was on The Simpsons voicing herself in 2013. And she has been like a... I think she was in like a Super Bowl commercial, if I'm reading this correctly. <laughs> She's just like of the attorney generals. She's been doing a lot, a more so than one, any other ones. Sure, yeah. yeah like I can't even tell too. you, I can't even tell you who's the sitting attorney general now. Yeah. <laughs> is it is it Blinken? <laughs> Blinken? What? A B-L-I-N-K-E-N? <laughs> oh man, you would know better than I would. <laughs> uh Chris, yeah, Chris is talking about that here. I wrote down the Janet Reno. That's hilarious. He's pulling a bunch of magazines around because he wants to show Ed something. And the whole time before this, Chris has been talking about like this almost lustful attractions and things. And it's hard to say if you can, if Ed is uncomfortable with this, but Ed is like focused on the task at hand. He's like, can you hand me a screwdriver? Give me this whole, give me that pan or whatever. So he doesn't really want to be talking about this. Maybe that's just my interpretation. I mean, it's an uncomfortable conversation. (laughs) (laughs) So when Chris is like, going through all these magazines. And he's like, oh, I want to show you something, Ed. It cuts to Ed and he's just kind of like sitting there. And I'm thinking like, Ed is like, uh, what am I about to see here? It's like some nasty like porno mag or something. But no, it's a Time magazine, Janet Reno on the cover. And that's a, it's a funny story um, to his like attraction. He couldn't throw out the magazine. And now he understands why he, this attraction to power and authority. He he references his ninth grade teacher, Mrs. Goad, and even the judge that sentenced him to uh, to prison, to jail, the Honorable Claire Dawson Chandervelle, which is also just like a very pretty sounding name too, Claire <laughs> Dawson Chandervelle, like the perfect yeah. name for Chris to fall in love with. Um, we've seen another episode, at least one, with... Uh, sort of like sexual kinks with, um, I believe it's Maurice. Well, it's the episode where everyone's having these dreams and they're having each other's dreams. And it's either Ron or Eric who keeps having these dreams about um, women's shoes. And he thinks, whether it's Ron or Eric, they think it's kind of humorous that someone in their town has this sexual kink and they want to figure out who it is. And I think it's Maurice they find out later. Who is uh who has this uh, attraction? Um, so we've dealt with stuff like that before, and this is also just interesting. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily wrong, um, but I do think you know the scene that preceded this and the scenes that will come after uh, definitely cross uh, more than one line. You know, this is a. Uh, Kind of disturbing, and as I said, maybe irreparably damaging Chris's uh, <laughs> character here. I don't like what they're doing. Uh, but let's continue forth and talk about the next scene. Um, hmm. I, I kind of have some sparse notes in this scene, but I'm assuming it's another city council meeting. 
and um, Michelle like might a, be there. Go ahead. Yeah, it's them at the brick. Oh, they're just at the brick. So maybe she, Michelle's not there. I forgot to she, mention. Oh, go ahead. She uh, she is there, and oh. yeah, like you were saying, Michelle is there because she is now a journalist working at Maurice's paper, mm-hmm. and she's trying to record the meeting. You know, and it's kind of her idea too. Yeah. In order to get the dump there, but she's trying to remain a disinterested, neutral third party on this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she's just getting all the facts that are pertaining to this case. But yeah, they're at the brick and Maggie is, yeah, she's doing a little politicking as you should. She's mm-hmm. trying to get some support. She's trying to understand what the people's concerns are about getting this dump. Unfortunately, other than hauling, who wants to dump, and they talk about it later to say, like, you know, it's beneficial for him because he uses yeah. a lot of trash. So mm-hmm. it's useful for him to not have to go six and a half miles. But the other members, Maurice, oh, he's not a member, but he's discussing it with Ruthann. And I don't know if Eugene is there, mm-hmm. but I do know that those two, uh, Maurice and Ruthann, are the ones that are heavily against it. And they talk about how. You know, it's like the principle of things, how they say that it's about how we can't even get the trash out without big government helping us. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, we just want to do things our way. We just want to live our life here. That's why we're in Alaska. Yeah. Um, so obviously it's an ideological friction against Maggie, who believes that government should be an instrument of good rather than just saying every man for himself. Um, because self-interest is our basic resting pulse. That is sort of what Maurice and Ruthann want. Yeah. I mean, I think the audience watching this episode are on Maggie's side. We're on Maggie's side. We, obviously, this makes sense. Central dump. This is a positive change for Sicily. But I mean, we also don't live there. And like, if there are a lot of people who live there and, you know, that's just their way of life is taking out the trash, those voices should be represented as well, which is why we have... Ruthann and Eugene on the council who are opposed to this. And and Chris, you know, uh, they bring it up in this scene in the brick. Someone says that Chris is already on record opposing Maggie's plan because we mentioned how Michelle has been taking um, notes in uh, the meeting. And I think when Chris says it in the meeting, he's kind of zoned out because he's He's not sure why, but he's attracted to Maggie, as we Mm -hmm. mentioned in that scene. He's zoned out. He's kind of just talking in thin air. And he says something interesting, basically opposing Maggie's idea. And Michelle even says, can we, you know, is is that a quote? He's like, yeah, you can quote me on that or whatever. So that's, he's recorded as a nay vote, essentially. So we've got, what is that? Dan, Eugene, Chris for nay, and just hauling in, and Maggie for yay. So... We're going to have to put this to a vote soon, but it's uh, already kind of seems like it's written that yeah. the plan is going to fail. You know, it's really interesting that Chris is spouting his views of what he believes government should do. And he says, like, you know, I best believe that, like, it should have the least amount of interference. That's how you can yeah. prosper the mm-hmm. most. And I definitely can see that as a characterization for his view. But on the flip side, had they written Chris to be like, you know, I believe that mankind thrives the best whenever we all help each other. Mm-hmm. I believe that we're not alone in this universe. We're all here together and we need to come together in order to live our best lives. And mm-hmm. that would paint them on more on Maggie's view. And that would totally work. I would I would buy that. Yeah. So it's funny how they can whichever way they want, they can flip Chris onto yeah. like a very uh a very left or right view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes a lot of sense both ways for Chris. And maybe that's also why his opinion is 
so clouded, they cloud his opinion in this episode so much because he really could argue both ways. But now it almost seems like there's some sort of passionate reason for why it's completely not political or ideological, just this attraction that he has for Maggie that is guiding him. And uh, even just to add on what you're saying, Charles, how they could have made a really um, beautiful argument through Chris for either side. Like there could have been a moment at the end, I guess we're going to get to it, it's going to be the biggest scene, but when Chris, he will eventually vote yay, supporting Maggie's um, you know, dump truck, dumpster. And um, she allows him to change his vote and it could take a second. So he could have he could have come out and been like, no, I've realized like he, he could have given the other argument because it makes sense for Chris to also talk about, you know, we need to all help each other. This uh, idea of a central town dumpster is everyone working together to make it better and to help uh, Sicily be a better place. We shouldn't be afraid of um, you know, change of change and, and giving ourselves a an extra hand. But, you know, that doesn't happen. I just thought I, I would point that out because what you were saying made me think, yeah, it could have been a really interesting also turn there at the end if Chris had done that. But um, but instead, yeah. we, we go to the next scene and we, we get a very, oh my God. Oh my very terrible look for him. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're opening on Maggie's house again. Chris is showing up and he says, hey, I just happened to be picking up mail and I saw that you had mail and your father had sent you something congratulating you becoming mayor. So we caught you this very expensive uh, Neiman Marcus. Yes, mm-hmm. Neiman Marcus suit mm-hmm. cost about fifteen hundred to two k. You know, congratulations! And you know, as it turns out, father never really sent the suit. It was just Chris trying to get his rocks off. Yeah, Chris delivers the suit, Neiman Marcus, which was actually referenced last episode. I hadn't heard of it, but I'm, I think you had heard. You, you're familiar with that, uh, some sort of like outlet or a clothing store in L.A. Uh, and Chris is like, you know, why don't you try it on? And she says, sure. She like goes to the other room, puts the suit on. And um, when she comes back out, Chris is like, oh, wow, like it looks so great. That's like really the perfect color for you. Uh, why don't you stand up on your tippy toes or whatever? And she's like, what? Like, you know, like stand up like as if you were wearing heels. And, uh, you know, at this point, Maggie realizes something is going wrong. Maggie suddenly says, uh, there wasn't any like return address on this package and there is like no writing, no letter like this stuff. Like she figures out that Chris made her, you know, did this to get her to put it on. It's just, you know, throughout this whole episode, Chris has been ad- acting very strangely, very awkwardly, uh, nervously. And this just seems to be, it's distasteful to me. I don't know. It seems, it seems very wrong for Chris uh, obviously Maggie is not excited about it. She like gives him the jacket back and she's like, I'll give you the skirt tomorrow. Like, I don't want this. Like you better have saved the receipts. Like get out of here right now. Right. And Chris is shoved out the door and, uh, starts sniffing the suit. Oh my God. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. There was like a moment whenever we see, um, Maggie kick Chris out of the, of the house. And mm-hmm. then they cut to a shot of, of Chris, um, stepping out of the door and the door closing on him. And then they cut back to Maggie inside. I'm like, oh, I mean, they didn't really need to get that shot outside of Chris. Like we could just see him leaving. But then they, you know, as Maggie's upset in her house, she's like storm- storming away. We cut back outside to Chris. And I'm like, oh, okay, I see. They needed the shot because they need a shot of him sniffing the, well, I mean, they don't need that. I don't know why they need that <laughs> shot. But, but yeah, I was like, I would have been happier if they didn't shoot that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It- 
Let's let's not talk about that too much. Let's just move on. Let's, let's move uh, on. Yeah, the next one is a very tiny scene involving Maggie and Ruthann, and again, it's the ideological argument that's happening again. Where, uh, in essence, of what the scene is trying to show, they're at the brick. Maggie is trying to make sure that her first bill is a success because it's symbolic of what would happen for the rest of her administration. You know, if you come out the gate swinging and you lose on the first one, it's not a really great look. So she's trying to do whatever she can to sweeten the deal. She's kind of offering like a quid pro quo deal to Ruthann saying like, hey, I secured this thing where more people are going to come to your store. It's going to drop a business for you. It's going to be great. Yeah, it's like Maggie said she like talked to another mayor of a nearby town and they're working on some sort of, uh, you know, they want to reroute some sort of traffic so that these people coming through for a special event are going to pass through Sicily. And because of that, Maggie's like, you know, they'll probably stop in your store, Ruthann, and, you know, they'll buy some more things, better business for you. We get all that new attraction. And um, yeah, that is like sort of the Ruthann's like, is this some sort of quid pro quo? I know what's going on here. Right. And, you know, as it turns out for Ruthann, if this is this isn't a knock on Maggie's character, believing that she's disingenuous on what she wants to promote. It's just that she genuinely believes in her own beliefs and that government is best left, you know, to the citizens' hands. So she's saying, I don't want the dump there. Right. That's pretty much it. I think the scene ends with uh the idea that it's not gonna Maggie's not going to be able to sway Ruthann, Mm -hmm. at least at this moment. And then the next little thing for this plot line, like Michelle is in the brick. I think she's talking with maybe, is it Maurice? And she's like, don't worry. Like if I do my job right, neither of our opinions are going to matter. Like it'll be a very straightforward journalistic point of view. Yeah. Michelle's just trying to get the facts of the case. And, you know, that impresses Maurice because they're trying to say like, you know, neither of our opinions should be influencing the decision of this. Though Maurice does say, like, I'm just trying to make sure that, you know, you're not filling out my paper with some, like, lefty-loony nonsense right here. <laughs> so right, he is approving of it, but not in, like, the same way in which they're coming at it. Like, she's doing it out of journalistic practice. Maurice is doing it out of, like, I want to make sure that, it, like, it's not being twisted or bent. Uh, a little bit less pure, but you know what? The goal's aligned. Uh, Maurice also makes uh, a note to make a dig at Hauling, reading from the paper, saying that, you know, it's been suggested. It's a second party characterization. It's coming from other people, other towns members, but to say Hauling wants this because it would benefit him. And you know what? Like, I think I get the reasoning behind it, but also it's like, well, yeah. He provides a large service to the town. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, it would make sense that he would vote something that would benefit him. Ergo, it would benefit y'all too. Right. Yeah, like, we, <laughs> I, just like, I, I'm not even trying to get into this on like ideological thing, just on like a practical thing, uh, in, in my view. It's like, someone has died making the trek out there. Like, do you <laughs> want Tolling to die? Yeah. He's old, man. Do y'all like the, the brick? You know, the brick needs uh, some help. Yeah, some help with the like, trash. He is the one Everyone going loves... to the trash the most. Yeah. <laughs> and surely he doesn't want to walk six and a half miles to and from. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, okay. Uh, the other the other thing I wrote down this scene is I was I wrote I'm okay. I'm actually kind of liking Michelle right now. So far, so good. I want to see her take a stance, which she sort of does. You know, later on when the. Um, when it looks like the the measure, the bill is going to get passed, she says under her breath, yes. And, you know, she's she's obvious about 
how she wants, I think when she's talking with Maurice here, she's obvious that she wants the dumpster. That was one of the things she requested, but she is acting um, as a neutral party here as a journalist, which I think is also an interesting um, position for uh, a character in Northern Exposure to have, like this this new introduction of a someone who's trying to be sort of a neutral party in between. And also, I think it's laid some good groundwork for this character, Michelle, eventually having to take a side in some episode, maybe in more than one episode. So, you know, she plays sort of this neutral party, but will um, potentially have to side one way or the other or change her mind. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of possibilities that could come from this. Yeah, definitely. And it's also really interesting that you bring that up because on the theme of people acting against their like quote unquote best interest or at least trying to remain neutral in the entire thing, Chris is in a weird way is fulfilling that same type of thing where he deep down wants to vote no on this measure because he believes that, like I said before, he's like, ah, it's best operated when we're left alone. But he's being influenced by outside forces, i.e. Maggie, in order to change his vote into a yay. So you have two different people that are just trying to hold steady right there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously Michelle is managing to remain professional and everything. Uh, But Chris gives in. And we see it in this scene where they're finally coming to a vote. And Maggie's laying down the rules. She's saying that the program can be funded for a six-month trial. We need to try it out. Let's see how it works. Maggie and Holly obviously vote yes. Eugene and Ruthann vote no. And it comes to the last vote. And Chris says, like, you know, I know that my vote well, on the record was no. But on these extenuating circumstances, then I think that I should vote yes. And Maggie almost bangs the gavel to call it, finishes it out. But then she realizes that Chris is doing this for uh, nefarious reasons right here. The worst of reasons. <laughs> like, at least it, like if we're trying to accuse Hauling of doing this for nefarious reasons, then at least his is at least trying to provide service to the town. Mm-hmm. Chris is just for singularly himself of what is now about to affect 700 to 800 other different individuals. Yeah. So Maggie calls him out on that. She retries the vote, allows him to give him another chance, and Chris votes nay. Yeah. Uh, she says to him, you're steamrolling your own convictions because of some screwball fixation with me. And as you said, Charles, it's selfish because Chris just wants Maggie to appreciate him more. And so if he gives her, maybe it's a quid pro quo thing. It's like, maybe I give you a vote and you'll like me again or something. And she sees this, you know, pretty instantly calls for a second vote and Chris understands that this is, I guess, in his eyes, this is a hard no. And so he says, yeah, I guess I vote nay. And then he like, uh, it's interesting because he just gets out. He just leaves the meeting. Everyone else is still sitting there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did really like the conclusion here. As much as it is a loss for Maggie, and I think later Michelle and Maggie sort of unpack this a little bit further, just the fact that we lost, like uh, progress lost during this episode. That's kind of a bummer. but. It is a um, a very uh, interesting, more complex conclusion than just something that could be more straightforward. Like if Chris really did change his mind for a good reason, I mean, I would have loved that way more for Chris than what we get in this episode. But it's what happens with Maggie here that I think is really interesting. Um, she has this belief, you know, that the central dumpster is what is right. She doesn't win that 
she, she loses instead because she understands that the process is wrong. And it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's just like a clever flip, I think, that uh, Maggie has the option to enact something that she believes is positive, the central town dump, but she chooses instead to look past that because the methods uh, to get there would have been improper. Like, you know, Chris switching his vote for not the right reasons, not for representation of the city, as a city council member should try to do. And I mean, hey, if you if you call back to uh, Walt's praise of Maggie in that first scene, he says something about like the this is the best, like the cleanest campaigner, you know, that there ever was. So Ma- saying that of Maggie. So, you know, like she at least got her position as mayor through presumably um, the right channels. You know, she has a very um, positive uh, approach to her politics. And I guess she's not ready to to change that. Right. Like, I, I'm just assuming here, because we didn't get to see the campaign in full force, but, you know, it seems like it's one of those things where it's an issues-based thing, where instead of trying to promote herself, she has to wear down the, her opponent. She's probably just promoting what she can do over to town mm-hmm. uh, rather than saying like what the opponent cannot do. So I would like to believe that of Maggie's character. And I, I, you know, and the reason I believe that is because of how the episode ends with her and Michelle, because Michelle isn't understanding. She's like, you know, like you have to take the wins where you can take them because there's going to be people that genuinely hate you. And that's going to be even more difficult to barter with. But Maggie sticks with her character and she says, you know what? I know that it's a loss on paper. Like when you go look through the town registry and it says failed vote, very first one coming out the gate for Maggie (laughs) O'Connell. You also know that like it failed because I didn't want to, I didn't want to give up my basic tenet of uh, being a decent human being. I didn't want to fold and get the win however I can. Mm -hmm. I want to say that like, you know what? Even if this is my first one, this is a definitive statement to the town that like I will not give in and cave on my ideology. Right. And next thing, Ed walks up to the two of them. He's delivering a message from Chris, a press release for Michelle to write in the uh, Sicily News. Uh, basically, uh, Chris is resigning, citing physical exhaustion and the burgeoning demands of the office. Chris is resigning from city council, says something about like spending more time on art and friends. Um, I think we get a shot of Maggie and she kind of makes a sour face like she's upset. Yeah. Do you think that there's anything symbolic about a dumpster being the main focus of this all? Oh, that's a good point. Mm, I didn't, I definitely didn't clock anything while I was watching it, but if we had to think about it, um, I mean, a dumpster is like getting rid of your unwanted trash. Uh, it's not exactly like washing you clean or anything. I wouldn't say it's the same metaphor. It's more about um, almost covering up the dirty things that uh, we, you know, throw to the wayside that we give up. You know, that we don't want anymore. Does I don't know. Did you did it? Did you have any thoughts on it, or were you just trying to pose the idea, the question? No, no. I think that like you have the similar idea that I was thinking on where. You know, of all these plot lines, it's people giving up something and trying to move forward. So Maggie sh- mm, okay. shedding her, um, you know, she's taking on new duties, but she's also having to shed Chris as having a fellow council member with her. It is Joel giving up his doctoral duties with the town, and it's Marilyn giving up 
you know, having cats. She has yeah. to accept this new duty. <laughs> yeah, she's got a new duty with the dog in her uh, in her plot line. That's true. Um, let's reel it back to the beginning and let's talk about Joel and Phil's plot line. Marilyn's is really short, so we'll do that right at the end. But with Joel and Phil, uh, I believe the plot line for that kind of really starts with. Um, Dr. Capra, you know, Phil Capra coming into the office. There's a little bit with Marilyn here. We can talk about that at the very end. Um, but essentially what's happening is uh, there's a letter that comes in. Is it also from Ed delivering mm-hmm. this letter? He's delivering a lot of like handwritten letters this episode. <laughs> um, this is definitely a handwritten letter. It comes from Joel uh, who challenges Phil to a game of golf. And Phil is like, where is Joel? No one's been very specific about that. Uh, if you remember, he's uh, from that episode Upriver. He's in the village of Mananash, Upriver, just past Dead Man's Gorge. Yep. And Phil agrees that it's a great idea. And he heads up with Ed on a little bit of a little motorized boat that he got going on here. I want to mm-hmm. say that this is not the same boat that he took last time. I, I thought Ed was paddling. Yeah, Ed was paddling before. And this time, there's actually some some other person kind of like chartering him up there. Oh, that's not Ed? Yeah, some guy named Dale. Joel oh, calls him Dale right. in this scene, yeah. but he's seemingly native. Uh, he might have a couple lines with Phil. It uh, doesn't really say too much. And uh, yeah, they're coming up. It is, it's a difference, like a motorized little motor on the back of a canoe. Uh, Phil kind of stumbles trying to get onto the dock, like trying to step onto land. And, you know, kind of, I guess his foot kind of like falls into the water. He mentions losing one of his clubs, like uh, on the rapids or something. But um, Joel greets him there, and Phil is like, oh, did Dr. Fleischman send you? And Joel's like, no, I am Dr. Fleischman. I guess it's, I guess it's just to kind of write in there that it's like, oh, this, um, this doctor from Columbia is now this mountain man, you know, this outdoorsman type person. But that's, I think that's pretty much it. It's like a really short scene, just getting him into Mananash, right? Yeah, and then the next scene is them about to embark on their golf trip. Joel makes some small talk by asking Phil how Sicily is. And, you know, Phil says, like, yeah, you know, it's a great little town. And Joel says, you should have seen it before it was overbuilt. So yeah. <laughs> I guess we are to assume that Maurice's idea of building Sicily into a larger town is successful. They're gaining more business. Which also goes back to my original point of if there's more business, then you need like the central dump there. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Um, it all ties and, into the dump. <laughs> and the big thing, yeah, for this scene is that Joel has a gun that Shotgun. he says it's for, yeah. yeah, anything that might be coming out for them in the woods. Now, at this scene, did you did you clock anything nefarious in this or no? Like you thought Joel was going to kill Phil or something? I thought that's what Phil was thinking because he's apprehensive. That's hilarious. I didn't think about that, but that's total. I mean, maybe because I have kind of seen this episode. It's not It's not fully coming into view on this rewatch, but I just knew that wasn't going to happen. But, uh, but that's funny. I think that definitely is probably what's going on with Phil. He's a little nervous about the gun. And we have heard also um, in their first episode, you know, last episode, Michelle mentions like, should we get a gun for protection from these wild animals that keep coming into our house? So, and and we can see there in that scene, how Phil is repulsed by guns. So Joel embracing that hunting, we will go episode where he went hunting that one time. He's really embraced it. Uh, He's got a shotgun, a Browning, I think he says it's new or Mm -hmm. something. And also 
uh, curiously, he doesn't have any golf clubs. He uses instead a shillelagh, just like a sort of like a club walking stick type thing as a as a golf club. That's what he's going to be using. Yeah, he rejects rejects the western <laughs> yeah. yeah western ideals of that golf club and. We see them walk out into this embankment. They start talking about doctor talk. It's to show that Joel still knows how to be a doctor because they're talking about the facts of a case and they're saying like, do you agree with my assessment? Joel's like, yeah, I think, you know, we need to do like this. And Phil's like, oh yeah, that's like the same conclusion I came to. Mm -hmm. And then they stop and this is where they're playing golf. It's actually on this embankment. Yeah, he's like right here. What do you mean? And then Joel has to say like, yeah, if you just like go like, 300 yards. I can't remember what he says, like this far ahead and then dog leg to the right. That's where the hole is. You know, you can uh, shoot it like this way. You got a little bit of wind that's going to carry for you. So that's going to help. Like he basically gives them instructions on how to shoot the hole. Now, actually, I mean, is it more obvious when you're actually playing on an actual golf course? Like I would imagine you could see like the little flag that you're heading towards. In this case, I guess, what I'm saying is like maybe there are some situations in golf where you don't see that, but at least you probably have an idea. In this case, yeah, we're we're really just like in the woods almost, like in nature. It's not like clean cut grass, not a golf course. But um Phil goes and swings and uh he he asks for a mulligan because it was so bad. I think Joel <laughs> says it's uh the devil's club, and Phil's like, Yeah, for sure. Like I hate this this golf club. He's like, no, 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 you're the area that you landed in that rough. It's called devil's club. It's like, okay. Um, and it's interesting because, um, there's a couple moments in this episode where Phil asks for a redo or is, uh, underconfident in being able to play, you know, play the ball where it lands. And Joel's like, no, no, it's playable. Nothing to justify a retee. And it's almost as if Joel's like picking on him here. It's like, <laughs> come on, like, this guy's never played in the outback before, if we could call it that. Uh, give him a give him a mulligan, but um, but no, we're we're gonna keep playing. Joel steps up with the shillelagh, and I noted when he does the swing, not only does it look like he has a little better form, but the sound is such a beautiful like swoosh and click hitting the ball. It just it looks per. I mean, we can't see the ball, but it sounds. It feels perfect. Yeah, yeah, definitely a beautiful hit right there. You get like a. I think there's like a POV shot of the of the golf balls whenever they're about to hit them. So the camera's low mm. on the ground and we're mm-hmm. seeing them about to see it. So that one's really wonderful. You know, like uh, I'm going to get into the next scene with here and it's going to tie into what I'm about to say right here. Okay. So the next scene is them continuing onwards. They're uh, greeted by like some other people that are also playing golf. Yeah. So so we know that like Joel's, Joel's being serious. This is an actual golf place. <laughs> and he's having a conversation with Phil about the the state of Western medicine and saying it's an incomplete picture of what we're trying to study because there's more than just the physical body. There's like the mental body, the subtle body. He's saying all these things. So I'm not saying whether or not Joel is wrong. I'm just saying that like combined with him knowing this stuff and him suddenly learning how to play golf with a stick, it's only been a few weeks. (laughs) He's, hey, man, he has so much free time now. No, I, I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. No, I, it definitely feels like, well, I don't know how long it's been between, maybe they've said it, but how long it's no, been they between said it. It's only, and, oh, they said it's only been a few yeah, weeks. Yeah, it's only been a few weeks. So at this point, they I'm got like, a doctor so fast. They got a new I doctor, know. like, because it feels like before Joel got to Sicily, 
you know, there hadn't been a doctor for a couple of years or something, or maybe more. But, um, but I mean, hey, as we mentioned already, uh, Joel said like Sicily's being built out more. It's growing. Mm-hmm. Things are happening faster. It's kind of becoming a part of the world now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I get what's happening on this scene. Like, I think everybody does. Joel's realizing that there's more to medicine than what's being found in the book. He is adapting to nature. He is being more open on his worldviews. I'm just saying that it happened so quickly that yeah. I find this hard to believe that he would 180 on his views and then suddenly pick up on this stuff. I kind of wish they would have done like a time skip of sort. Right. That would have been amazing. That could have just been, that would have been really easy too to do. Like there's no reason, especially now that Joel's upriver, there's no reason to play it out like week by week, especially at a certain point. It's like, if we want to set him up as completely changing, I agree. Yeah, there, I think there should be a little more time for him to be a master of uh, right. shillelagh golf and twina, Chinese therapy, acupressure, and things like that. Yeah, and it also would have set up like more of these plot lines, like Maggie becoming a mayor. Yeah, yeah. We would have been more susceptible to that idea than like just suddenly just barreling into it this episode. If there was just like a time skip, we open with like a flat out card, just exposition said like one year later, later or something, one yeah. year later, and then we could be like, oh, okay. You know, Maggie suddenly decided to run for mayor. All right, I get this. Joel is now understanding his worldview is uh, opened up. Yeah, and that would be such a powerful title card, too, if it said one year later or, like, you know, even six mm-hmm. months later. That's um, conf- confused why they wouldn't do that. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I can't really recall how, if it's been, I guess it's presumably just been a few weeks, but I, I guess they do kind of mention that, that it's that he's only been gone for a little, uh, not not too long. Um, that Joel has only been gone for not too long. But um, yeah, they talk about the subtle body, the mental body, um, Western medicine being narrow. These are some notes I took down. Uh, There's a valid distinction to be made between a man of medicine and a medicine man, says Phil. And I think Joel is in agreement to this, but he's looking for a sort of synthesis, or at least what Joel's epiphany has been lately is a synthesis of accepting other schools of medicine into his practice. Uh, and he's, you know, in his in his case, he's had a lot of success, it turns out, I guess, with the acupressure and things like that. Um, the next time we see them is they're still playing golf, walking around now, kind of like walking over a little creek where there's a little bit of running water, like a stream, a um, bunch of like riverbed stones and things. And they're looking for Phil's ball. And he's saying, you know, like, just count a couple strokes against me and I'll just retee like right here. It's fine. Like we were never going to find this ball. And Joel's like, don't worry, we're going to find it. And they do find it. It's legit under like some twigs and some brush <laughs> and like caught between two stones with running water. And Phil's like, all right, I'll just retee it. And he's like, no, it's still playable. Like he like, I think Joel like goes down to the water line and he says like, it's not full, it's not fully underwater. I forget what what word he uses, but he's like, it's still playable. And at this point, I, I think he's, I thought he was like breaking Phil's balls. But I think what I've determined later is uh, he's not just testing Phil. I think he's trying to show Phil that he can have the confidence and he does have the power within him to be successful, not only in this game of golf, but in the town of Sicily. There are going to be some distinct challenges that he'll face. I guess we'll talk about this a little later. Um, But I think this is also a way, not only of Joel testing Phil, but to show Phil 
that Phil has value. You know, he's a good doctor. Um, and, you know, more literally in this case, that he does have the power within him to to be a good golfer. They talk about in this scene, um, this like old pro that was teaching Joel in the, again, in the, uh, presumably in the past three weeks or something, this, uh, <laughs> this, this professional or like this very skilled golfer named Morris Aniak, who has frostbite on three fingers, but could still birdie any hole, piece of cake. He, he gave Joel guidance. Many of the best players out here is he's like, he's like a mentor to them and was teaching Joel, um, how to, I guess, connect the mind and the body. I wrote down in my notes here, he says, Joel says to Phil, getting the ball where you want is not much different than my using energy channels to ease migraines. It's the union of mind and the body, the interconnectedness, you understand? So kind of some spiritual mumbo jumbo saying like, if you can center your mind and your body, you're going to be a golf pro. And Maybe it's just the pep talk, but uh, Phil does a pretty good save there, you know, getting the ball out of the riverbed and back onto presumably the fairway. I guess is that what you call it? That's what they call yeah, it in Mario yeah. Golf. So <laughs> <laughs> I assume they used the correct terminology <laughs> when they had that ape, that 600 pound, like one ton ape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I wanted to take note of two things, um, and they both pertain to the activity of golf itself. One is that I thought it was really neat that when we return to Joel, he's playing golf as we know since like season one, episode two, episode two or three, that he's yeah, been such a fan four, of golf. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, oh, yeah. If we remember yeah. that episode, he was having like a rough time playing golf in like yeah. a pretty fancy place, and Ed was his caddy, and... Joel still wasn't like, you know, being amicable to the entire situation. And now he's playing golf and the outdoors. Mm -hmm. So I was like, that's a great contrast. Yeah. And the second thing is that golf, like archery, is very mechanistic. Like you hit the thing or you release your arrow and it either hits the target or it sinks into the hole. Those are realistically like the only two outcomes. Now, obviously, you can miss the target on either one of the two sports, and then you got to go walk to the ball and then try again, stuff like that. But the end goal is very much the same on the sport. It's uh, it's different from like basketball and football and soccer and all that, which has like other people. You have these teammates that you have to involve yourself with, and um, you know there's rules and all of these things. Whereas in golf, it's very simple, like. Sure, there are some rules, but ultimately what they're you're trying to do is like, yo, get this ball into the hole in however way you can. And it's just your swing, and that's all you got right there. So I think that there is a silent beauty to it for them playing golf and why they chose this to be the sport mm -hmm. for feel to learn the the inner workings of how life is gonna be in Sicily. Mm -hmm. And it's also um competitive in a sense. So we get that sense of Joel testing Phil, as I mentioned, and seeing is Phil good enough uh, to be doctor. And um, to continue the game forward, the next time we see them is uh, that sort of that opening soundbite that we played where it's like now it's dark and it's moonlit and they're still playing golf. And uh, it's just this, I think they've reached a point where they're at this sort of beautiful open expanse Vista where you can see the mountains in the deep distance. And um, they're still talking about 
medicine and how you want to blend. Yeah, I think Phil says, you mentioned it before, something like blending, letting your instincts recalibrate and blending. Maybe I'm taking that also to mean the blending of Western medicine and other types of medicine um, is what Joel is starting to practice. And Joel, as we heard in the soundbite, Joel says like you can kind of envision the ball. If you hit it just right, you can see it before it even lands. And Phil like is trying, he closes his eyes and is like doing the whole like mental focus, projecting the vision of the ball landing in the hole. And um, he swings, he hits it, sounds beautiful. And he says, I see it, Joel. Or he says something like that, right? He's like, I can see it. Like, even though he can't see it, he's like, I know that it, you know, knocked this way, bounced two times and then rolled over in between these two patches. It's like a perfect shot. And, you know, this is all very focused on Phil closing his eyes. We're getting close up on him as he's like focusing his own um, mind's eye to where after he hits the ball, the camera cuts out and Phil is all alone. And for a moment, I was like, is uh, is Joel like a force ghost, like a Jedi or something? Like he wasn't actually <laughs> That's what there. I thought too. He That's what I genuinely there. thought. <laughs> he wasn't really there. Yeah. Um, then we get the hard cut. Get a hard cut to him sleeping. He's up in a tree with his golf club. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now, the last time we saw someone sleep in a tree, it was Ed. He was like sleep flying, remember? Yeah. And I was yeah. like, wait, is this a callback to that? Or is Phil going to be like called to be a shaman? I guess it kind of fits there. That's I don't think that's what happened, but it kind of fits there. I think I think what we're led to believe is Phil climbed up in there because like he was afraid of bears and stuff or something or something like that. Yeah, but would that even really work though? Like it was he wasn't that high up. Yeah, I mean the idea Surely the, the bear idea could reach is there. <laughs> like the thought process makes sense, but I don't think the execution was done very <laughs> yeah. well. Also, like I don't know how he stood in the tree like while sleeping on there. Like it's a tiny branch. Like you would have had to grip it while you're sleeping. But right. wouldn't you like go of your grip when you <laughs> fall into sleep? I don't know the I don't know the mechanics of that. It doesn't. This is just a, a TV show, and they were like, you know, we can't put them up too high because this isn't a stunt double. No, I get you know? that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I'm not really gonna dog on them for that. I get it. It's a cool shot, you know, to open up with them on the tree. <laughs> but when you zoom out, it's like, yeah, he's not really that high up. <laughs> the bear could totally <laughs> jump and grab him. No. Uh, yeah. Then he angrily finds Joel. Joel's cooking up some morning coffee right here. And he has this angry flare-up saying, like, you left me, man. You left me. I could have starved out here. I, I could have been lost. Something dangerous could have happened. And Joel says, relax. I was never really that far away. You did fine. This is almost like a test mm-hmm. I was doing to see if you can survive the outdoors, to see what you can do when you're handling something that's unforeseen because that's what life's going to be out here. And, you know, we, we all get that. We all understand mm-hmm. what Joel's trying to do right here. Yeah. And I I maybe interpreted a, a step further, but I think it has some precedent that's shown in the episode. I definitely see this game of golf as a way of Joel testing Phil, making sure he's got what it takes to be a good doctor, not just a good golf player, but like I'm guessing Joel's like, I could learn a lot just from talking to this guy while playing golf and maybe see how he approaches um, competition, sportsmanship. Like, what can I learn? I can test Phil to see if he's the right fit for Sicily. But I also do think even before Joel abandons him that night, I think Joel already believes that Phil is a good fit. I think he is in a way doing a lot of these things um, to Phil, for Phil, uh, to show Phil that 
he can't, should have the confidence that he's in the right spot. This is going to work out for him. Um, because there are moments like earlier on when Joel says, no, we don't need to read T, you got this. And on first glance, that just seems like Joel handicapping Phil. It's like making it hard for Phil to have a fair game with Joel, who's like, this is his home turf. And that could be part of it, but I do think it's Joel's showing Phil, because in the end, Phil does succeed. You know, he gets better. So it's a way of Joel showing Phil that he's got what it takes. And this is something that's kind of unstated. I kind of just interpreted this, but I like to think that, you know, Joel's aware that there's going to be a lot of challenges. I think I mentioned this earlier, that Phil's going to encounter a lot of challenges in Sicily. Uh, Whether or not Phil understands this yet, it may get hard. It probably will get hard being a doctor. And we can see by the end of the episode, as much as uh, Michelle is enjoying writing in the journal and as um, surprised and uh, constantly like a, a breath of fresh air that Phil feels from being in Sicily, they have their doubts. So that's that's one challenge. Um, they have their doubts about staying in Sicily. But I think Joel is largely trying to... Um, not only test Phil, as I said a thousand times, he's trying to give Phil some confidence to tackle the job, I guess. Yeah, I I would have preferred had they ended it right there because mm-hmm. the final scene involving Phil is actually quite frightening because he's in bed with Michelle, he finally makes it back home, and he's talking to her about his day, uh, his outing with Joel and playing golf. And he pulls out this pamphlet of Joel whenever, you know, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's, in his, he's in his prime before he went out into nature. And he says, what happened to this man? What could happen to somebody that just a few short weeks ago was, it was in charge of the town's entire medical life, could now actually just become this outdoors shamanesque figure. And... I read the scene as feel worrying, being like, is that going to happen to me? Mm-hmm. If I stay in this town and I'm just as bright eyes and bushy-tailed as this fellow that I'm looking at in the picture, am I going to just suddenly move up river and abandon, you know, Western civilization and just live out in a creek? Like, is that really, <laughs> like, I would be so scared because yeah. that's what you're thinking. You're, you're thinking like the last doctor, you know, he, he just went AWOL. And now you're saying like, I got to go do the same job. Like that, I don't know. Like, yeah. Did you have that read? Yeah. I mean, also in this scene happening simultaneously is Michelle recounting the failure of the city council to instate a, uh, a city garbage dump, central garbage dump. So it's like a loss on her end. And the last thing in this scene is, uh, the last line Michelle says, well, maybe it's just this place is the heat on? And she like, it's raining outside. She like curls up under the blankets and she's uncomfortable by the cold, the environment here. Um, so yeah, right, it's a lot, it's a lot right. of kind of dark feelings it's, here. In this last it's scene. man losing to nature yeah. because they're saying like, maybe it's the place here. When they try to get the dumpster and try to have a central planning for it, it fails. They don't change the town. It remains how it is. And the nature itself changes Joel. Joel doesn't change nature. Like, he bends to that will mm-hmm. and goes out to join nature itself. And now they can't even get the heating to work. And they're saying, like, they're defeated against it. So, really, Sicily 
is painted in such an unflattering light, in my opinion, in this episode. It's a, it's at a, least in this last the way they close this plot line. It is. Right. A, I agree with you. Yeah, it's like kind of a dark way to close it. I would say, um, to me as a viewer, I know that Phil is different than Joel, and I also know that that you know, if we are going to continue with Phil, it's not going to the season's not going to end with Phil doing the exact same thing as Joel. So I know that his encounter with Joel here is going to, I'm assuming, I would like to see this through the rest of season six. Um, This encounter starts to sway Phil into situations where he is uh, practicing medicine, which we know he's going to be a doctor in town, but he has to open up his uh, methodology to more non-traditional ways, I guess. So we're going to see from the beginning, not someone like Joel, who somehow in a few weeks or whatever has mastered uh, the blending that they've they've called it. We're going to see from the beginning, from the ground up, a doctor, not unlike Joel, a Western doctor, um, potentially incorporate uh, more non-traditional means, methods to treat his patients and I think that's a good building block for the rest of a season um, and in a new character, someone who is uh, between the two fields and trying to use both. Now, we knew Joel, Joel Fleischman, before he went up to Mananash, would always be in argument with people like Leonard. You know, I don't think they would ever completely um, synthesize. We might take a few things here or there, but I, I'm wondering, and I could be completely wrong, but maybe Phil Capra will fill a role that is going to be something like Ed's uh, shaman and Joel's Western doctor kind of trying to weave the two together. That's what I think this episode sets up. Again, I don't know if that's actually what's going to happen next episode. Right. Uh, that brings us to the final plot line, Marilyn and the dog. Marilyn and the dog, Chuck. The plot line starts with Marilyn going to, I guess we can call him at this point, Gil LaFleur. He's like a recurring character. We've talked about him before. He's in a few different episodes in season six and a couple in season five. And I think he's playing different characters some of the times. Pretty sure this is the same as he was in last episode, Gil LaFleur. Uh, he's selling this old champion race dog, I think, or some purebred husky that is from a, a great line, something like that. I'm not too familiar with breeding and stuff, but, um, yeah, he's got this, uh, this Husky purebred $5,000. Uh, the caveat is he kind of looks kind of old. It is kind of an older dog, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Older looking dog right here. And I'll say just to summarize my thoughts on this, and we're going to go through it each plot by plot, but I just don't want to lose the string right here while I'm thinking about it is that I thought that the dog kind of parallels Phil's life right here in that, Marilyn is purchasing this dog for the express purposes of breeding, which is she wants to keep the lineage pure. She wants to get some great, strong huskies to pull the sled. And there's something very, I I know that this happens in real life and for good purposes. I, I want to make that clear. I'm not saying like, yo, if you breed dogs, you're a monster. Like I'm not saying that at all. (laughs) Um, you know, she gets this dog and it can't perform its functions. It's one job that she got it for. And it's because it's in a new environment. So it's not, it's not comfortable. 
And Phil, in some way, is also in a new environment. He's not going to perform the job that he got hired to do, i.e. doctoring. He's not going to be able to do anything that he came into the town of Sicily for. So I kind of saw the parallels right there. Mm -hmm. But I also think like how kind of like if I'm making that comparison, that's a pretty dark one because Marilyn is purchasing this dog just so we can do this one thing. So its value is reduced. This is one action that is, you know, arguably supposed to be natural. She calls it an investment. So I would agree. Yeah, that's like her opinion is like she just wants this as a money investment. Right. And, you know, if we parallel this with Phil, it also similarly reduces his role uh, as an individual and what he can achieve in the town. I'm probably reading too much into it, and it's probably because we've been talking about this for an hour, so I have a lot to stew on this. But... I, I didn't like the taste that it left in my mouth right there. Again, I'm trying to reiterate, uh, it's the parallel between these two things. I'm, I'm not saying that uh, breeding dogs necessarily <laughs> yeah, makes yeah, yeah. you a monster. <laughs> no, yeah, I actually really like that interpretation of it. I think um, just like Marilyn is uncomplicated in her dialogue, like a conversation with Marilyn is pretty to the point, pretty curt, pretty short. I feel like this plot line is also like pretty... Not complex, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. It's clear that I think you can attach um, pets and the love of animals uh, to this, but also I think this plot line is easily some sort of symbol for something that's happening. So I really like this as a symbol, as you're saying. Comparing that to Phil, can we compare that? I think there are a lot of great connections there. I took this at the end which is something I've been thinking about a lot in season six as interpreting it as a symbol of Northern Exposure, the show, the series. And I think what's great about the Husky in this episode and this symbol of that, what it could mean is that it could mean a lot of things. And I like that it is uh, kind of blunt and not, or I guess not blunt, but kind of broad and not very specific of what's going on. You could, I think any number of people watching the show could have a take on what this means, but it's obvious that it has it has some some stuff going on. As we as we'll get through the plot line, we can kind of attach it to different things. But let's just quickly run through it. It's a pretty simple plot line. So uh, Marilyn does end up buying the dog from Gil in the first scene with Phil Capra here when he gets that letter inviting him to the game of golf with Joel. Uh, he says something to Marilyn in the office. You know, you can't really have pets in here. I'd prefer it if you didn't have the dog in here. And Ed says, well, you don't understand. A husky's not a pet. They're work machines up here, practically public transportation. And this is where Marilyn says he's an investment. So she wants to make it clear that there's no emotional attachment here, perhaps. Ed says, Marilyn doesn't even like dogs. She's a cat person, Uh, which is something I think you mentioned. It's like, you know, she has to give up being a cat person later on because she's offered some kittens, but she's like, no, uh, the dog wouldn't really like it. The dog's name we get in this scene is uh, Chuck. Yeah, Chuck right here. He is a prized husky that a lot of people want to try to use to sire some little husky puppies. One of them being Maurice as Marilyn brings him over to his place. Maurice obviously checks out the goods, trying to make sure that everything's good right here. Uh, After some light grilling, Decides to take him out for a ride with, he apparently has his own dog. Mm-hmm. I forgot the name of her. He's got a long name. He calls her like the counselor or not the count. I'm thinking of city council, like the countess maybe. 
Uh, she does have a name though, but he keeps, he refers to her in a, in a couple different ways. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty much what happens here. I, I like that Maurice is, um, comments the coat, like he likes the coat on Chuck. Uh, but he comments that the ears are like too big or too small or something like that. And oh, he says the ears are a little too small. And Marilyn says, well, he's not a show dog. You know, having a small ears is actually better, like in the wild or something. You know, his dad won the Iditarod two times or something like that. So it comes from a good lineage. I think it's cool, though. And it's, to me, somehow fitting to Maurice's character that he's more of like the show dog style. Mm -hmm. He's viewing it as a show dog perspective. And the value here is more, um, I guess, in the survival, the purity of the breed. And it's just like a perfect breed for a husky or something like that. Um, I don't remember how much, but Maurice is like, I don't know if they say an amount, but he's going to write Marilyn a check. Yeah, this, $500 for the, for the stud nice. fee right there. And according to Gil, uh, you know, Gil had said, let me put it this way. Chuck's never home on a Saturday night or something like that. So like every weekend, you know, Marilyn could be getting $500 every Saturday. Um, according to Gil, we'll, we'll see how that, that pays off. Yeah. Uh, well, unfortunately, it doesn't pay off for Maurice <laughs> because Chuck is, well, he is uncomfortable in his new environment. He doesn't mate with the Countess and Maurice demands his money back. And Mar Marilyn eventually relents. She's like, mm -hmm. I'll write you. I'll write you to refund, man. I don't know if I will. I mean, I, I think I think it applies maybe to the Phil interpretation, but I don't know if I would say that uh, the environment isn't necessarily the cause. I think that's a excuse that Gil gives to Marilyn. Mm. So you can interpret it either way if you believe that Gil is telling the truth, which also I think is a great way to interpret it for Phil being in a new, strange, uncomfortable environment. Um, but I guess we, I, I'm jumping ahead because I, I have some thoughts about the Gil scene mm. coming up. But it turns out, as you mentioned, Maurice was unable to get Chuck to breed with his dog and then... I think later Marilyn mentioned someone else, Tanya something, mm -hmm. had the same problem. Marilyn offers a couple things like, did you feed him? Did you do this? Nothing worked. So she ultimately says she's going to write Maurice a refund. And uh, I think the next thing is when she does approach Gil, right? Yeah, she approaches Gil saying that, hey, I want to... I want to return to this dog. And Phil says, I'm sorry, but I think you're just having buyer's remorse right here. I I just think you're not happy with the purchase and I don't want to do the refund. And it eventually gets to the point, which I think is interesting, where Gil says, Marilyn, we've known each other for years. I'd like to do this to you as a friend, but as a businessman, I can't. It's kind of the same conversation that Maggie has with Ruthann, where Ruthann says, I don't doubt your sincerity, Maggie. It's just that as my own personal beliefs, I just can't let it happen. So there is like a divide between these people and like what they want uh, as a human being and what they want as a friend, which, you know, in a, some weird roundabout way, you can kind of apply this to Chris as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 I see that. I see that there. Gil says like, as a businessman, I couldn't do that. I couldn't take him back. You know, mm -hmm. I have this precedent that I want to set for my business, but I can see, yeah, applying that to Chris here. Um, I also wanted to mention, did you notice what Gil is doing in this scene? He's packing something up into his truck. Yeah. It looks like he's trying to secure a tarp over some furniture because it's raining. It's a see-through tarp 
this, I always think about stuff like this, these little actions that the actors are performing in the scene. Like, is this written in the script or did the director decide to place this here? Whatever the case, it was definitely someone's decision to have a truck on set, to have furniture on set, and to have a tarp. So this action is important, whether it is important to the writers or the director's interpretation of the scene. I think, um, you know, and it could it could also just be a thing where, like, maybe they were shooting and, you know, there was a truck nearby. But the furniture, the tarp, those are all elements that I think you'd have to bring and set up. So, um, yeah, I don't know, just to interpret that one very quick interpretation is Gil is trying to cover something up. So he's trying to cover mm. uh, a secret that he maybe he lied to Marilyn. That's one thing I saw. And it, it, the fact that the tarp is see-through, I mean, it could have just been like a see-through tarp. Those are very common, but that could also have some implications that you can see straight through his lies. Again, I don't think that's a, uh, that's also in the territory of more of a subconscious reading, or it doesn't have to be an exact direct reading. I think you could you could easily, he could easily be doing anything and the scene would work just as well. But it's something that I uh, I tried to interpret from what I was seeing. Oh, I get what you're saying. That's really neat. I definitely did not think on that. I, I was I was mostly applying it to like, you know how you watch like CSI or something like that? <laughs> yeah. Where like people are just doing random yeah. things where they question them. They're like, yeah. hey, did you see like a young girl go in this building? It's like, I don't know. I got boxes to move. <laughs> yeah. Which often case, like the, I guess they call it like chewing the scenery or whatever, when actors are just like doing these motions and things, that's oftentimes it just makes it feel more naturalistic and there's no deeper reasoning to it than that. I don't know. I just thought like the, there's too many elements here that seemed kind of specific that, mm. you know, they weren't, they wouldn't just be lying around on set. You'd have to. No, 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 no. I'm, yeah. I'm buying what you're selling, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. That brings us to the, I think it's the second to last scene involving Marilyn, to be honest. There, there isn't that many shots with her. Yeah. Uh, they're at the break and Someone decides to bring oh my in God. some kitties. I'm sorry. We did skip. Well, let's talk about this because the other thing. Oh, wait, did we skip it yet or no? Which one? Well, there's this uh, wonderful scene that they decided to include where it's literally just Marilyn like sitting at the desk. She looks over to Chuck and she says, I hate you. Oh, <laughs> That's the yeah. End of the scene. Yeah. I forgot <laughs> about that. So dark. That um, I hate you. And that's pretty much, I mean, she's knitting, like there's some things going on, but really the, perhaps the shortest scene, one of the shortest scenes in Northern Exposure, they just really needed that for some reason. The writer thought they could have just done that. it without those words. Could they not? I don't know. I, well, I don't know. It's, it's a very powerful thing to be so blunt. That's literally all that happens in a scene. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, you can't escape the fact that Marilyn said it. So I don't know. I mean, I think, again, I don't want to apply too much meaning to it because I think my interpretation is pretty out there of it being like Chuck represents Northern Exposure, which is an old show that used to be great. And uh, we still keep it around because we believe it's going to, we have the hope that it'll do something great, but it's not delivering. But I don't know. We'll, we can keep talking about that as we, when we finally wrap up the plot line. But, uh, but yeah, Maybe maybe there's a harsh reaction, like people people are starting to dish on Northern Exposure when it used to be beloved. I don't know. Um, yeah, what, yeah. Did you, what did you think about that? <laughs> I hate you scene. Uh, like you said, man, it's it's uncharacteristic <laughs> of Northern Exposure. Very David Chase. It's very David Chase. If I could assume that's David Chase, feels like yeah. That. Um, 
But we're turning back to the scene in the brig. Right. Uh, Marilyn is hesitant on adopting one of these kittens because she knows that Chuck would dislike it. You can start to see like the turnaround right there. Mm-hmm. I don't know why they included this scene as well. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> so like Marilyn is, I think she's like trying to advertise the dog even more. It's got one of those little notes that you stick onto like coffee shops where you like peel one down, call the number, that type of thing. And Hayden says like oh you know it's like it's not a show dog it's like uh what does he say forget what he says he does some sort of pun someone graffitied her flyer and put like oh, ha ha on it Go it's ahead. not a husky stud it's a husky dud and oh, it's like and everyone the whole crowd off hayden <laughs> the whole crowd starts laughing um how would you cause yeah. enough trouble in this town <laughs> yeah yeah that's pretty nasty um yeah, I mean, I guess the only reason they would include things like this is to show, it's, I still think it's a kind of depressing ending, but um, to make it seem more powerful in the final scene, which I think we're about to get to, is that that's just the that's next it, scene, man. right? That's, in yeah. the final scene here, Marilyn lets Chuck come inside. So how it's set up is, um, comes directly after Michelle says, is the heat on? And she curls up under her blanket. It's a stormy, cold night, wet and cold. And... Uh, Marilyn's opening up her furnace and she puts some more firewood in the furnace, sits down in her chair and begins to knit or resumes knitting. She thinks for a second and she gets up and opens her door and lets Chuck inside. Chuck has been sitting on the porch. Of course, it's cold and wet outside. And there's this music, I'll Be Around by Tony Bennett playing. And um, yeah, to me, it's like we understand that Chuck is a failure. He's kind of a burden to Marilyn, but for whatever reason in her heart, she, well, I don't know if she doesn't want to get rid of them. At least she can't get rid of them. For better or for worse, they're stuck together. And uh, perhaps, you know, her letting Chuck in is a representation of just the goodness in her heart or perhaps um, what I took it as is like the hope and the belief that this promise of greatness within Chuck could be restored, you know, maybe one day, maybe like, as you're saying, Charles, maybe one day he'll, he'll get comfortable and he'll be able to breed. Also, it could simply just be out of respect of past accomplishments. That's also part of it too, but I don't think it's a huge part, but they do mention how at one point he was great. Chuck was great. Now he's old now. Um, yeah. And for me, I just, I, for whatever reason in season six, I'm constantly trying to overanalyze in the sense of like, what could this mean about the show overall? At a certain point, if a show's running long enough, a show like Northern Exposure, I think they would turn their uh, inquisitive minds introspectively, like think about what the show is as it is, you know, especially with that um, that season premiere this season. Mm. Yeah, I can definitely see the metaphor that you're trying to draw off on. That is a really interesting one. That definitely slipped my mind. I was not thinking about that. But what's beautiful too is that it also ties really closely in, as you've put it, with Phil's plot line. And I think it's a great little mirror. I think a, a lot of times in Northern Exposure, they love to do that where they'll, they may not tie every plot line together. Sometimes they all fit well together. Sometimes they're so disparate. But sometimes, <laughs> I know there's a lot of different options, uh, but sometimes, you know, quite frequently they'll have sort of mirroring plot lines. And so if we could take Chuck as a mirror to Phil, I think that's also a pretty great uh, interpretation. 
Okay, Charles, now's the point in our podcast where we're going to bring on a guest. This season, it's fans of Northern Exposure to talk about season six and specifically to you know focus on each episode that we're talking about. And uh, Charles, we put out a call uh, as we've been doing on Twitter and Facebook, looking for fans of Northern Exposure to talk about the show. And we got we got a lot of uh, response. Some people will be featured later in the season, but thankfully, Nate on Facebook was available to hop in this week and give his thoughts on real politic. So let's listen to what he has to say. Hello there. Listener Nate Crawford chiming in from up in Nova Scotia, Canada. I'm a longtime lover of Northern Exposure, having come to it midway through its third season while trying to fill the hole that remained after the cancellation of Twin Peaks. My first episode was Burning Down the House, and whoa, what an episode to jump in on. It was love at first fling. It was a bright, soft, warm light after all that Twin Peaks darkness. Of course, I still adore the show, or most of it, as you'll hear. I'm one of those people who's been to Roslyn and wandered around in a state of bliss as the locals gave me the side eye. And I've stated numerous times over the decades that if I were to encounter, say, curious aliens wanting to learn the basics of humanity, I'd just hook them up with some northern exposure. The first four seasons, that is. Some of your previous guests have mentioned endpoints at which one could walk away from the series and be happy. And for me, well, that's the end of season four. Yes, Joel and Maggie's story ends on a bit of an ambiguous note. There's no I'm a Sicilian ending for Joel. And if you're really keen to learn if Shelley ever shakes her singing sickness, you're left hanging. But otherwise, the planting of that tree and the strains of turn, turn, turn by the birds leave things just about right for me. For I really have to say that I borderline despise David Chase for what he did to this thing that brought me so much joy. Watching season five in real time, week to week, was an exercise of faith for me, which never really paid off, and yet I did see things through to the end of the series. I have a background in theater and film, and therefore an intuitive eye, maybe, for unhappy actors. And as we progress through the fifth and sixth season, the adage, unhappy set equals unhappy actors equals unhappy audience, really does prove true for me, and I had to accept this as the show went on. And yet, Upriver occupies the final spot in my top ten episodes list. I think it's because, well, something major happened. They made a bold choice, and a bit of the freshness that followed reinvigorated the series as much as could be expected at the time. So, with real politic, we have one of the first promising examples of that freshness, because here comes the first meeting between doctors Philip Capra and Joel Fleischman. I think what I'm going to do with this is just dive in, a list off my thoughts, kind of live tweet style as I watched the episode. I won't get super analytical because that's your job. Uh, my partner and I rewatched the the whole series on Blu-ray, original music, in the winter of 2021. So this is my first time seeing real politics since. So right off the top, 
we have a perfect example of the diminished enthusiasm of the show and the characters. The Chris Stevens of the wonderful episode Democracy in America and his fervent enthusiasm for the electoral process is gone. He reports the election results in a blasé way with none of the pep and vigor he or the series once had. It starts things off with a tamped-down version of something we've seen before. Similarly, we have a redo of Marilyn's ostrich breeding enterprise, but this time she's on to sled dogs. There's an off-putting tension in this plotline and her interactions with Maurice and Mr. Lafleur that's indicative of seasons five and six for me. And then Chris. Chris's uh, situation when it comes to Maggie. Uh, in past seasons, Chris's sexuality was presented in an approachable, positive, even entertaining way, but not here. Not at all. Talk about your awkward, awful tension. Talk about creepy and wholly inappropriate. Chris is all over the place this season in ways that we have even yet to see, but they're coming. And Chris, more than anyone, always seemed to know himself. That was a huge part of his appeal. But here we see him barreling ahead with this obsession he admittedly doesn't fully understand. And Maggie, well, you know, if Chris really wanted to feel that powerful woman energy, she should have zapped him with it by turfing him off the town council immediately and without question. The fact that he got off with a resignation is not cool, not satisfying at all. And then we have uh, Dr. Capra's introduction to Joel. It's promising, but another kind of redo happens that echoes Joel's introduction to Leonard back in season three. This comes off as easy and contrived, as so much does in this episode. Say Chris attacking or attaining a, a magic Armani dress from the world's fastest delivery system. Kittens being on offer in the brick in the thick of Marilyn's dog crisis. And Joel being Yoda-level mystical after what? A week or two upriver? He's come a long way in a short time, it seems, unless, as you point out in your episode about upriver, we've had a long time pass between that episode and full upright position. I, I did a bit of a rewatch on that and couldn't really get my bearings on it, but... Let's imagine that a lot of time has passed, I guess. So these contrivances and the way that these three storylines never really gel in that amazing elliptical way that they can with Northern Exposure and can give you that, that practical out-of-body experience when they hit their synchronicity, that all makes this a subpar episode for me. Now, what could have strengthened it? Maybe some humility on Joel's part to go along with his ascetic mysticism. There's still to me, the vaguest hint of his smarminess in the way that he schools Phil on the golf course. He's not Leonard Quinnahawk quite yet. Or perhaps some commentary on the radio from Chris, reflecting on what he went through with that weird psychosexual fugue he appeared to endure. The, the radio scenes were, I think, sorely lacking in this episode. Without giving him the opportunity for self-reflection that we so often have, we don't know if he learned anything from what he did to Maggie. I think I liked the featured characters less at the end of this episode, and I felt kind of fearful for the Capras, who were entering this two-year commitment of theirs only to spend it with these bummer people. 
So I want to mention Twin Peaks again for a second by way of explaining why my commentary has been so negative and why this thing that made me so happy for four seasons became, as David Lynch might say, a sadness. Now, this is a bit of a spoiler for that show, maybe, but I'll keep it vague. Uh, there's a moment in its third season, the one released in 2017, in which our heroes seem to move from the Twin Peaks of the television show to a kind of Twin Peaks of the real world. The uh, logos are gone from the local diner. The person who actually owns Laura Palmer's house in real life appears on the show. And it's a chilling sensation because it's meant to be. But that's also kind of how I felt when David Chase took over Northern Exposure, that the magic TV curtain had been whisked back, and suddenly we were in just another remote American town where the people were vulnerable to boredom, frustration, and unhappiness, instead of effortlessly capable of easing our boredoms, frustrations, and unhappiness. But after dunking so hard on that episode and season six, and five, uh, I'll leave on a positive note. It, it is a memorable episode for the same reasons that I've kind of already said. Apart from Marilyn's, uh, Marilyn's plotline, it, it doesn't really elicit that Twin Peaks gloom like certain season five and six episodes do. Joel isn't sitting around silently with his father. Chris isn't having a big existential crisis about heart medication. Shelley isn't making deals with Satan. So the, the golf game sticks with you, I think, afterwards. Maggie's character leveling up to being mayor sticks with you, even if it is defined by the um, really seedy Chris context there. Uh, and this episode also is significant for me because it's one of only two occasions where my girlfriend and I laughed out loud during the season. One is upcoming, so I won't spoil that, but... When Marilyn said, I hate you, to Chuck the dog, I don't know why, but it has ended up as our most quoted line of the entire series. So, for that reason, I'm very glad to have had the opportunity, nonetheless, to revisit Real Politic, and also to have the opportunity to contribute to the podcast. So, thank you very much to you both. Keep up the great work, and Keisho Brothers from North of the Border. All right, that was Nate with the guest commentary right there. And I know that we say this a lot, but uh, we're recording this a couple weeks after from when we recorded our part of the podcast. Yeah. So, you know, like the front end of the 90%. Now we're on the back end of the 10%. And I had to pull up my notes from the last time we were doing this episode. And the last thing that I wrote, uh, <laughs> without any context, was weird, bad episode. So that's how I remembered. I was like, oh, this isn't a good episode. So you're uh, you're in agreement with uh, Nate here. I like that Nate uh, tried, you know, at the end he, he did have uh, some a positive note, you know, but uh, there's definitely a lot to criticize. Well, I guess let's start at the beginning of Nate's recording because I love how he sort of weaved Twin Peaks into this because it turns out Nate was introduced to Northern Exposure in season three with the episode Burning Down the House while it was airing. So like watching Northern Exposure back in the 90s in season three. And it was because Twin Peaks had just been canceled. And I guess Nate was looking for something, uh, another TV show to fill the gap there. And, you know, just comparing the, this this has been a comparison that uh, a lot of our guests in past seasons have brought up. 
because a lot of the guests in the previous seasons, they had never seen Northern Exposure before, and they're trying to compare it to another show in the 90s. And in fact, Northern Exposure and Twin Peaks ran concurrently. Obviously, Twin Peaks got canceled, but uh, they're both super 90s, but very differing vibes, you know, very different tones. Right. Nate says that burning down the house was his first episode from him. Came in right there, and then he just... One of the best. Yeah, great great episode to start off on. And then he transitioned and kept watching throughout all of Northern Exposure, and he says that the end of season four was the peak for him. And I was remembering what happened at the end of season four. I, I think that, like, you know, he's not entirely too wrong on that. I think that season four can be a stopping point for Northern Exposure. Yeah, that's a good that's a that's a good stopping point. Nate points out that, you know, there are some cliffhangers there. Specifically, he points out Joel and Maggie's relationship at that point. And then Shelly is is singing, you know, like she doesn't is she's not cured of the singing mm-hmm. at the end of that episode. It I love that it uh, spans seasons like that and goes into season five. But um yeah, I mean there's a lot of great uh, and Nate, Nate said this as well, like uh, a lot of people have their own sort of like, this is my walking away point. Yeah, I would be curious to know at the end of it all, if we could find one, I would probably try to put it somewhere in season six, just knowing what we've seen so far. Mm-hmm. I do think this is like canon for me for the show. You know, if you're if you want to watch Northern Exposure, you got to get through at least there's there's episodes in season six so far that I, I think you should watch. But um I wonder how far that goes. You know, are the cappers going to be included in that? I don't know. But another thing I thought that was really interesting that Nate, uh, he says he can sort of discern sometimes is seeing, you know, kind of inferring if an actor is unhappy, you know, not the character, but the actor on set (laughs) or, you know, in the show. And I was wondering, Charles, did you, have you noticed in Northern Exposure or I guess in any show, but specifically Northern Exposure, have you gotten any of those feelings that you're like watching and it's like, uh, I can't really tell if this is like a genuine performance or this person's not having a great time. Yeah. I think it's kind of difficult to tell. Like I think one of the infamous stories about Caddyshack is that Chevy Chase and Bill Murray famously did not get along with each other and Mm. the shoots were long. They had to retake all the time and they were just going at it. But when I watch Caddyshack, it is on the screen, but not so much to that level what you're mm-hmm. reading about. Uh, there's also like on the same topic. I think that when Chevy Chase hosted SNL, like in 1976, him and Bill Murray got into a fist fight, like right before <laughs> Chevy Chase comes out and does his monologue. So like seconds before he leaves that door, he just got into a fight. And it doesn't look that evident when you're watching it. So I don't know. I I really can't pick up on that type of stuff. I'm not saying that Nate is wrong on his intuition. He's done theater. He's definitely got a stronger grasp on this than I do. Yeah. And I think I mentioned it on the podcast in this season. There was like one, I, I think the actors are all really good in this show, but there was like one scene. It was like the beginning of full upright position when Joel is planning this trip to go to Russia and like Maggie is like, you got to go here. You got to go to the ballet, do this. And Joel's like, well, you should just come with me. Something about uh, Janine Turner's performance in that scene seemed a little bit phoned in. Like she's, the scene requires her to play excitement, you know, and it, it felt a little phony for whatever reason. And again, this is no knock against 
Janine Turner. Maybe it was just like a long day on set. And I think she's fabulous in this series. Obviously, a Golden Globe nominee, you know, amazing performance as Maggie O'Connell in this show. But um, but yeah, maybe maybe that was one example I could think of in the later seasons. Also interesting that Nate points out some comparisons to past episodes, you know, things that we've kind of already seen before happening again, like uh, Chris in the very beginning of Real Politic here is on the air talking about election results. Compare that to democracy in America when it's just, there's so much spirit and excitement and charm and just eagerness for the democratic process. I guess they have to, you know, this is just a quick opening expositional piece, but it just, you know, it, it, it pales in comparison and it reminds you of democracy in America. And then Marilyn, uh, now with the sort of the husky, uh, raising, trying to, uh, breed huskies, comparing that to like the previous episode, it might've been animals RS, but it's the one when Marilyn tries to like start an ostrich egg farm sort of thing with uh, Maurice. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Animals RS. That's the one with Mm -hmm. Marilyn and ostriches. I want to point out something that Nate said about Sicily becoming an ordinary town. Mm. And I think that he's on to something right here. Because when we tune in to watch Northern Exposure, we want to see a tight-knit community that seems a little magical, a little bit more than what we're seeing in some unincorporated town in the middle of nowhere America. But instead, we're seeing that. We're seeing all the petty squabbles that happens, Mm -hmm. all those types of towns, and the dynamics that follow. Uh, I never really thought about that, but there is some truth to Nate's word right there where he's saying that David Chase is introducing this very unnecessary component to Northern Exposure that we don't really need to be exposed to in order to bring it more to life. If anything, the more magical it is, the more it resembles our lives. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it, Charles. And I really liked uh, that point that Nate made. It's something I didn't really think of, uh, but it totally works for, like that reading works for season five and season six. Just those, like, everyone knows, like, something's different. And it's like, how do you exactly describe it? But I think that's a great way of saying it. Like, uh, we're just in this sort of mundane, boring, like, <laughs> the... The townsfolk are boring, frustrated, and unhappy. You know, it's actually really interesting now that I think about it more. And I don't know why I didn't talk about this at like season five, episode one, when David Chase came in. But (laughs) I think that as an audience member, unless your showrunner is also like the Ryan Murphys, Aaron Sorkins of of the world, the people that have such a substantial role in the show that if you remove them from the equation, you know, you're missing a critical component. Unless you're one of those people... I think that generally you shouldn't be able to tell that there's somebody new on board. Like the writers are the same. We're having the same people that were in charge. Mm-hmm. It's just that, you know, when the showrunner leaves, I don't think that dynamic should change so much that people across the world can pick up the differences. Yeah. And as talented as Joshua Brand and John Fauci were, I don't think that they were like extraordinarily hands-on like someone like Sorkin was mm-hmm. on terms of uh, the direction of the show. So what I'm trying to say right here is that the ship was okay. Like it looked like the ship could <laughs> sail by itself and then a new captain came on board and then steered it wrong. 
But if it was like a regular captain that they hired, probably wouldn't have done anything. Probably would have just kept it steering. Yeah. Yeah. And I think David Chase has been quoted saying he hated television at that point in time and probably was trying to. You've also surmised, Charles, that maybe they hired him to tank the show because they needed to uh, end it. And yeah, I mean, I also had that similar thought about Joshua Brand and John Falsey. Like, I didn't necessarily think of them as you know, super signature, like a strong personality onto Northern Exposure. And, they, you know, I, I've even heard people say that with Northern Exposure, they gave a lot of first-timers, like, a chance. Like, you know, like, first-time directors, uh, you know, there's, like, ADs who are like, hey, you you can direct this episode. Or I think uh, Adam Arkin, the, the actor who plays Adam, direct, the first thing he ever directed was an episode of Northern Exposure, I'm pretty sure. And, um, man, you know, it would have been cool if Rob Morrow directed one. I think it was like around the time that he was maybe trying to renegotiate contracts or I don't know what was going on, or maybe he was thinking about leaving the show that he was getting into directing. So maybe it just never panned out. But I also just wanted to just circle this back and say, I never thought Joshua Brandon, John Falsey had like a huge personality, but I mean, maybe they did (laughs) like in comparison to, uh, at least you know, whatever David Chase did was not right for the show. I think they were, they were just smart enough to, like you said, like keep that ship sailing, Joshua Brandon and Falsey. Right. And I'm not dogging them in any way. It's just that those two, I like, they weren't as involved in the, in the writing from what it seems to me, Mm. which is Mm -hmm. what makes up a show is the writing of an episode. So I think that it takes like a command from up above to set this entire tone. Cause otherwise it realistically should have just kept going par for the course. You got mm-hmm. the same actors, same writers, <laughs> pretty yeah. much the same everybody. Diane Frolov, Andrew Schneider, uh, Mitchell Burgess, Robin Green, a lot of the same, you know, all-star writers, you know. Uh, I, I, I want to talk some more about some things that Nate pointed out in his response here, his commentary. He was saying he 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 wasn't entirely sure the time jump between like upriver and this, you know, like how long has Joel been in Mananash? And when we recorded Charles, we were pretty sure it was just like a couple weeks, maybe like three weeks, like not very long. And unfortunately, like it's been a while since we watched these episodes. So I have no real answer, no, uh, you know, confirmed answer. But at least when we were recording this, we were pretty certain that it was just a couple weeks. And um, I like that Nate compared Joel to like, this sort of Yoda character, but still sort of like lacking in humility. And uh, it just reminded me of uh, the scene in in this episode where Joel like vanishes. And I was like, Charles, do you remember <laughs> he's like a force ghost or something? Like yeah, Joel's yeah, not yeah. there at all. He's transcended to force ghost. I, I do want to just shout out Twin Peaks. Nate, thanks for bringing that comparison of uh, Twin Peaks season three. I watched it for the first time, I want to say last year, season three, that is. And uh, I love those moments in season three, as you're describing, like the magic TV curtain is being pulled away. And uh, in that show and Twin Peaks, it's this dark, stark realization. And uh, unfortunately, in Northern Exposure, it's just a wrong fit. It's just a total tonal shift that that doesn't work. Uh, some of the positives are the golf game, Nate says. That, that definitely sticks with you in the end. And Maggie, even though she loses that vote, 
She sticks to her principles. And it seems hopeful, uh, though, if you remember, Charles, we talk a lot in our discussion about how how much of a down ending this episode is, It's or this episode has. It's kind of a, just a loss on all levels, it seems. <laughs> Everyone loses. Yeah. It, oh, it, things are looking grim. <laughs> and uh, before we finish with uh, Nate's commentary, I, I just, uh, one of the last things he pointed out was the line that Marilyn says to the Husky, I hate you. That was a line that made Nate laugh out loud. And it just turns out to be one of his most quoted lines from the series. Charles, our response was, yeah, it was, it was not a, not a, a humorous moment for us. It was uh, kind of scary to, to me, but <laughs> I can see it. I, I mean, it's, you know, I can definitely see it being read for a joke as well. All right. That's going to finish up the guest commentary for Nate. Nate, thank you again for submitting that. Loved your thoughts about Northern Exposure and Lee next week. Well, we actually already recorded next week, so I actually can't guess what the title means. <laughs> well, you will recall it's The Great Mushroom. That's right. We've watched this already, and we're recording this in the future, so you already know what happens in next week's episode. It's going to be Season 6, Episode 11, The Great Mushroom. Good episode. Well, let's find out next week. Lee, I'll see you then. All right. I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Nate for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.